Jewish only on Kabbalah.org. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Mechira, selling, business, Perik, Tisha Osar, chapter 19. Very interesting law. Also, it is forbidden, Lamocher, for the seller, Limker, to sell, Lachavere, to his fellow, to another, Karka, real estate, a metalpilin, or movable objects, Sheyeshba Asikin, the Yeshbodin, which is in dispute or has a judgment on it. Now, we have a little bit of an advantage nowadays where we have a computerized world. We have title insurance. Back then, there weren't even any computers. There probably weren't title companies, except for Chicago title. They were here since creation, but other than Chicago title. So how would you really know if the real estate you're buying is owned by someone else, is disputed, if there's a judgment on the car you're buying, on the donkey? It is forbidden for the seller, in good conscience, to enter into a sale when there is a dispute and when there is a judgment. Until he discloses it. In business, once there is honest, upfront, full disclosure and agreement, you can do anything. That's a very important fundamental principle in the laws of business. Two people can agree to any kind of business deal, if they agree. But without disclosure, it is forbidden. Even though what's the difference if I tell him or I don't tell him, I'm responsible. If this judgment really comes full circle, I have to pay anyway. So why do I need to tell him? The answer is, no man wants to give his money and enter into litigation. And he should get subpoenas. Nobody needs lawsuits. We have enough problems in our own life. We don't need to enter into service. So therefore, if you're the seller and you know there are possible problems coming around the corner, you must disclose. If somebody sells land, real estate, to another, and after the buyer makes that act of acquisition, called the Kenyan, in one of the ways, which we actually learned about in great detail. In chapter 1, the three methods of acquiring real estate, but he hasn't actually used the property yet. He acquired it, but he hasn't used it yet. At that point in time, somebody tells him, hey, you know, mister, you're a machine, you're getting involved with that property, that property's in dispute. He says, no, I didn't know that, yeah. But even though he acquired it, he made a formal acquisition, he can back out because he doesn't need to enter into a disputed situation. We learned earlier that a blemish is sufficient cause to undo a sale. There's no greater blemish than litigation. But he didn't even enjoy the property yet. He bought an orchard of apple trees. He hadn't even had one apple yet. And already litigation, already the lawyers are here. And the litigants come along. Who needs this? Therefore, he has the option. He can nullify the deal. He can say, no deal. And he gives the seller back the money. Have a nice day. Let the seller deal with the litigants, and then maybe we'll buy it, maybe we won't. That is if he hasn't used it. However, the buyer used it even poquito, even a little bit. Even if he knocked down the property marker, and he took the property, made it an extension of his adjacent property, all he did is knock the fence down. Now he can't retract already, because now he actually did something, which is more than acquisition, it's use. Now he has to litigate with the, litigate, with the litigants. They might see him the other and if the litigants take it from him, poor guy, he just bought the property. No problem. He goes back to the seller. Kedin called like the law of any property that is purchased and then taken away by a creditor. And we learned earlier, and we will learn later, this is a very important principle in Jewish law. That anytime I sell a property, all the money that I owe for certain kinds of debts, and we're gonna go into more detail, we've learned some detail, is leaned against this property. The property agreement does not have to specifically carry the lien. There's an across-the-board lien. And this is what he begins to talk about in paragraph 3. Anyone who sells land, real estate, anyone who sells a servant, a sharmatalkum or any other movable object, a car, a donkey, an ox, a bracelet, a computer, an iPad, he is responsible to maintain the commitment of responsibility, which means he has to stand behind his product. Case for example. If somebody comes along and litigates and takes that piece of property or that servant or that movable object from the hands of the buyer and takes it away, how does he take it away? Because it was leaned by the seller. How does it work? If there's an obligation that the seller took on while he owned this object for property free and clear, that's the obligation. It doesn't have to be attached to it. You don't need a lien like you do in our world. So the buyer who was hurt by this then goes and takes back all the money that he gave from the seller. The buyer paid money. The property was taken away from him in litigation by a creditor. The seller has to make him whole. Because the property was taken because of the seller. Obviously the seller has to make him whole. 
This is the law across the board, the whole minkar, in any sale. And here comes a very important law in Torah. As I like to tell my students, this is going to be on the test. Even though the buyer did not specify this, he just purchased it, and nobody told him there were liens on it. That's the story. Even if this real estate was sold with a document, if there was a lien, the document should have said something. It doesn't even say that if there are liens, the lien will carry over to this property. It just says Mr. A sold Mr. B a property. It doesn't talk about liens. This is an important fundamental principle in halacha. Please listen carefully. He's still responsible, even if it didn't say anything. Why? Because responsibility, a lien that's not mentioned in a deed, it's simply a mistake. We have to assume that any deed by representation of what it is carries all the liens that the seller has along with it, whether it says it or not. And this is known as the principle of achrayus tos sofer. The fact that it doesn't say there are liens or that this will be liens is just simply a scribal error. It doesn't say, it should have said. So you can't come and say, what do you want? Why are you taking this property away? I have a deed. The deed doesn't mention anything. This is why, my friends, today we do a title search. Why do we do a title search? Because you want to make sure you're not buying the Brooklyn Bridge that belongs to Brooklyn. Now, he qualifies this. And this is also very important. When does this apply? When the person who <coughs> repossessed the property took the property from the buyer of the Bezin Shalisrael in a Jewish court. For example, it was a portable object, a movable object. And it was proven in court that the object was stolen or robbed. The guy who sold him the property was a thief. What else was known? Good morning. Or not the movable property, but the land could have been stolen. How many people do we know that sell people property that they don't own? You know, it's a living. There's a lot of shenanigans that go on, even with title insurance. Or the creditor of the seller came along and took it away from the buyer. All of the above applies if it was in a bona fide, responsible Jewish court. If a non-Jew came along and repossessed this property from the buyer, whether he's following the king's law, or the king's courts, here, the seller is not necessarily responsible because the laws and the kings back then were not as fair as they are today in the United States. If you want to argue that the system of law is fair here, Certainly, back in the times of the rule of kings, nothing was fair. So therefore, you could just say that it's a guy who comes and forces property out. It's not litigated in a bed deal. Even though this Gentile litigant is arguing, that the seller stole this, and he brought Gentile witnesses, but it seems to be on the up and up. Again, the seller is not responsible, because this falls into the category of an event that is beyond anyone's control. When the king's people come, the king can do whatever he wants. And the seller is never responsible for stuff that happens that's out of his control. What happens in a Jewish court isn't under his control because he should be responsible. The fact that some government official comes, who knows? It's a tragedy, but we're not going to say that he necessarily has to pay for it. Commentaries say, unless this event would have been found, would have been brought to the same conclusion in a Jewish court. That's something else. Now comes the point that I said was important. If somebody sells real estate to another, remember we talked about a principle that I cannot repeat enough times, in business, whatever two people agree upon is agreed. As long as there's disclosure. If he sells a property to another, and he made it conditional, that anything that happens to this property, the seller is going to be responsible. I don't care if it's a Gentile. I don't care if it's the king's court. I don't care if it's bad guys or good guys. I want to know that you take full responsibility. In that case, even if a non-Jewish fellow came, as a result of a non-Jewish court, or a king, or a bully, and took it, he's obligated to pay. Why? Because that's the deal. The deal is, I'll buy this property if you take full responsibility. I don't want to hear about accidents. I don't want to hear about out-of-control events. But sometimes the event that happens is totally unpredictable. For example, if there is an irrigation stream that is watering the field, and suddenly the stream dries up, for whatever reason. Or the stream is suddenly flooding it. A little too much. And my field became a swimming pool. Swimming pools are nice, but not in the middle of fields. Or an event of nature came, an earthquake came, and destroyed the field. Here the seller is exempt. Because all of the above, and anything similar, it's an unpredictable event. This is what the insurance business today calls an act of God. 
This unusual, unpredictable act never entered into the heart of the seller. Nobody made that condition of full responsibility. Any unpredictable event, which is not in the seller's control, does not even fall within this category. The same law applies again, very central fundamental law here. The same law applies in Jewish law to any financial condition. Any condition involving finances made between two people, as long as there is clarity and full disclosure, is binding. We have to analyze the intent of the person entering into this agreement. But what falls into this condition are the known events, which was on the mind of these people when they entered into that agreement and specified this condition. Something that was in the mind of the person at the time that he entered into this condition. But something so unpredictable and so unusual would not be. What's an example of that? So the Rambam does something which he occasionally does. Very exciting when he does it. Students of the Rambam always enjoy it. When the Rambam brings a story down. Maisa, there's a story. There was a guy. He hired, he contracted with sailors, with the Navy. I'm just kidding about the day. The sailors. To deliver a load of sesame seeds, upstream, downstream, whatever the deal was. You know, boat shipping was a big business. It still is today. And he entered into an agreement, making it conditional. I am entering into an agreement with you. You will deliver my sesame seeds, seeds to its destination. But listen, if I am not on time with this delivery, I lose a ton of money. So you, Mr. Sailor, you are responsible for any event. I don't want to hear it. It rained, it didn't rain. It was a storm. There was going to be a storm. The boat broke down. You got to have AAA. Let them send a tow truck for the boat. <laughs> the whole thing is any event, she that will happen to them. All I want to know is it's delivered. You know what happened? The river stopped flowing. Imagine the Mississippi River that flows like molasses in the summertime. Didn't fall. The river stopped. Can you imagine? I mean, we never saw our LA River stop flowing. Just kidding. The Amru sages said, This is an unusual event. Who would ever predict the river would stop flowing? Come on. It's been flowing since Adam and Eve. So they ruled that the sailors, the boat people, do not have to deliver the sesame seeds, the sesame seeds on an animal. They don't have to do it on a truck. Uh, they say, look up to that place because the river dried up. No one ever imagined the river would dry up. So this is an event that nobody ever had in mind when they entered into that condition. If somebody sells a piece of land to another, here, this is important, listen my friends, and the seller enters into a condition. Okay, you have Mr. A is selling the property to Mr. B, and he says, listen, I'll sell you this property, but I'm not sure what the deal is. I'm not sure who's litigating, who's not. You know what? I'll sell you the property because you want it, but I take zero responsibility. Anything happens, anybody litigates, I'm out of it. As is. Now, this goes contrary to everything we learned till now. Is that okay? The answer is absolutely. Any <clears throat> agreement made in business, as long as there's full disclosure, is okay. So we just finished saying that you're always responsible for the property you sell, unless you say you're not. And unless everybody understands you're not. I feel a native of our day. Even if it became known clearly without a doubt, that the real estate that the guy sold him is simply not his. He robbed it. The rightful owner came and took it from the buyer who was left with nothing. Because the agreement said zero responsibility, there is zero responsibility. If we say that if he finds it was stolen, there's no responsibility. Surely if a creditor comes and takes it, that the seller is not responsible. Shane Mafia they call me have to give back nothing. Why? Why would this be? This guy's a thief. The answer is in these four words. And if you learned anything here, you have to learn this. Shakol, Tanai, Shabimomin, Kayam. Any clearly worded, fully disclosed condition in business, in money matters, is binding. As long as nobody is deceiving anyone. I'm telling you, I'm selling you this property. I take zero responsibility for anyone who comes and takes it away from you for any reason. Why? Because the buyer should have known something is wrong. The buyer should have been very suspicious. But obviously he wanted the property. Maybe he was getting a good deal. Now we know why he was getting a good deal. And here come, in the last two paragraphs, two fascinating laws. Tess, Ruben, Shemach, Sadul, and Mr. A, who he calls Ruben here. Because he uses the example of Yaakov, of Jacob's sons. So Ruben is the oldest son. Ruben sells a field to another fellow named Shimon. Shalei Bahraiis, Ruben says, Mr. Shimon, I take zero responsibility. And it's written. So there is no responsibility. A third person comes along, who we'll call Levi, comes along. And Levi litigates and proves that he has a lien on it from Reuben. And he takes it away from Shimon. Now, remember, Reuben sold it and took no responsibility. So who gets stuck? Shimon. Why does Shimon get stuck? Because Levi took it from him. Can Levi go back to Reuben? Absolutely not. Reuben said, I take no responsibility. It's in the agreement. 
Now, Imrotsa Ruben Lasha's Dinam Levi, what if Ruben wants to litigate with Levi? And Levi could say, Who are you? I have no business with you. You can't just enter into a litigation because you're bored. You have to be a party in the litigation. Ruben is not a party. Says the Rambam, he is. If Ruben wants to enter into litigation with Levi, also he can go right ahead. The Ain Yochal Levi Lomar, the Levi cannot tell him, Malibi Loch, what's with me and you? You have no business. You took no responsibility. So I took it for a debt that you had. Don't you litigate with me because you don't have to pay for it. We say Ruben can litigate. How come? Why? I'm glad you asked. Says the Rambam, Shari Ruben, Ruben, Because Ruben tells him, I know I have no financial commitment, but I don't want Shimon being angry at me and having complaints against me for the rest of his life. Because I sold him a property and then it was taken away from my debt. Even though I had no, reason, no responsibility. Shari Hifsi the fact of the matter is that he lost money because of me and therefore I am involved. And of course, all of this is from the Halacha and the Gemara and so on and so forth. And finally, interesting case, Ruben, it all begins with the same scenario. Ruben, Mr. A, sold the field to Mr. B without responsibility. He made it very clear, I take no responsibility for anybody who sees this. Okay, so now whose field is it? Shimon's. Did Ruben take responsibility for the litigation? It clearly says he has no responsibility. The Chazer Lekacham Shimon Bachrayas, then Ruben, a month later, a day later, a year later, buys the property back from Shimon. So now the original seller, who sold it without responsibility to the buyer, buys the property back from the buyer. So now the buyer becomes the seller, and the seller becomes the buyer. But he is smarter. He did it Bachrayas with responsibility. He made Shimon take responsibility. So whereas Ruben was not responsible to stand behind his sale to Shimon, Shimon is responsible to stand behind his sale back to Ruben. Now what happens? You guessed it. And the creditor of the original guy, Ruben, comes along. And he is taking the property, seizing the property. Why? Because there was an obligation from Ruben many moons ago. Now, I would think that perhaps Ruben can come back to Shimon, who sold him the property with responsibility. Says the Rambam from Halacha here, he cannot. Why? Even though when he sold the property to Shimon, he took no responsibility. But logic dictates that he took responsibility to defend the property from himself. He can't be the seller. And then the guy who repossesses. That's not kosher. Abo, but in Bob Yaakov what if another creditor comes along? Who's creditor? A guy named Yaakov. Who is Yaakov? Their father. And he repossesses it. He takes it from Ruvain for an old, old debt. Meaning, where did Ruben get the property from originally? From his father. So now his father's creditor came along. Ruben could go to Shimon, who took responsibility, even though Shimon bought it from Ruben. Without responsibility. But because Shimon took responsibility. Ruben did not take responsibility, being that it's being repossessed due to another creditor. So, sadly enough, Ruben does not have responsibility. Shimon does, so Shimon is a loser. End of chapter 19. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Mechira, selling, selling, buying business. Patek Esrim, chapter 20. Moving right along in the various scenarios which can occur between seller and buyer. Now we're going to go into negotiations. What if somebody wants to make a purchase from his friend, from his colleague? The seller says, sure, I'm happy to sell you this. You have to pay me 200 zuz. If you're thinking that 200 zuz is $200, 200 zuz is $200 when a dollar was a dollar. 200 zuz is a lot of money. The buyer says, are you crazy? 200 zuz? Are you crazy? That's my words. I will not pay more than 100 zuz. So seller wants 200, buyer wants to pay 100. What else is no? You know the best art in negotiation is to walk away. So they both walk away. And then they gather together again, and without saying anything, and the buyer just took the object towards him, a form of acquisition, Mashiach. So the question is, there was no conversation. Does this mean they agreed on 200, or does it mean they agreed on 100? The answer is, if it was the seller who now made the proposition to the buyer and gave him the article, which means the seller made the first, did the first act in the part two of this negotiation. So the seller blinked first. That means the buyer won. So he only has to give him 100. Because the seller approached him, but the buyer initiated in round two. And came and just acquired it. In that case, it appears that the buyer is acquiescing to the price of the seller, which was 200. This scenario is, you know, a person goes to a marketplace, to a fair, and he knows he bought an object from one of five people, but they all look the same. 
Not sure which one he bought it from. Every one of the five says, from me who bought it. You got to pay me. And every one of the five says, I am the purchaser. Now, to be honest, he has no idea from whom he purchased. They all look the same. My mother of blessed memory used to commonly quote the expression, that's a Yiddish expression. All Greeks look the same to a Jew. All sellers look the same. They're behind the store and they're selling. So he bought it. He acquired it. The deal was done. But who does he pay? They all want the money. Can you blame them? They, perhaps they're serious. Perhaps with the busyness of the market, they all believe that they were the seller. He places the money for the purchase between them, amongst them, and he leaves. Commentaries say he gives it to the court. The Yihad and let the money sit. until they all confess, until the truth comes out, or if the truth doesn't come out, until Eliyahu Anobi comes. Because the Gemara often says that when Eliyahu Anobi comes, he's going to tell us all the resolution to all the doubts. He's going to tell us who the real seller was. That is by pure legal requirement. But if he's a pious person and he wants to really cover all bases, the fact is he bought something and doesn't know from whom he bought it, and they're all saying from them, obligated he's not. He pays the court. It sits there. But if he is pious, nice and he gives money to each person, in order to really fulfill the demands of heaven. He goes above and beyond the call of duty. Next scenario, he made a purchase from one of five people. And then the guy took him to court. He says, you purchased, you owe me money. And he says, I did not. And he takes an oath that he didn't. That's a scenario in the Chumash. He also chuba then he felt bad, he repented. But he now wants to pay. There's a whole system. Except that he's not sure to whom. Everyone of the five is putting in his demand. He says, I'm the one that you took an oath of denial. He says, I'll tell you the honest truth. I don't know. Any day, I don't know. Now, this is a different scenario than before, because this would be reminiscent of another scenario that Rambam was talking about earlier in the laws of robbery, where he robbed one of five people. He doesn't know which one. When you want to restore a robbed item, it means you transgress, you did something wrong. It's not like you bought something and you did nothing wrong. And you're not sure from whom. Here you robbed something. Here you denied taking something, and he took a false oath. Because there is an act, which is a sinful act that was done here, he has to pay everyone. So in the end, it's going to cost him five times as much. He has to pay all five. Why? Why can't it be like the other situation, where he puts it in court and walks away? Because he committed a transgression. You do the crime, you do the time, as they said in Newark. The seller is believed when he says, here's a situation, and there are various scenarios here. Bottom line is, is that there are two buyers looking to buy a very desirable item from one seller. Must be a bargain. Both buyers paid the seller. One from one of them, the seller accepted it willingly. The other one, the buyer just pushed it into his hand. So one is a bona fide buy, the other is not. That's the deal here. Again, but in this case, the seller is trustworthy, is credible, is believed. When he says, to this one, to this guy I sold, to the other guy, he shoved the money into my hands, but I didn't intend to sell it then. So the seller is asked, who is the buyer? And the seller says, hey, when is this true? The seller still has the object. Because if he has the object, then he's a big macher, then his opinion is important. Ah, but he no longer has the object. The object is in the hands of one of the buyers or somewhere else. In that case, he's nobody special anymore. He's just a lone witness. And the testimony of a lone witness is limited. The value is limited. The applicable law in this testimony is, like any other lone witness would come. At most, a lone witness could obligate someone to take an oath. Because he doesn't have a real connection anymore. He's not holding the item. The people, therefore, are not allowed to in the scenario which we talked about, where he accepted money from both, from one willingly and from the other not so willingly. He forgot from whom he took willingly and from which one he took against his will because they both looked the same. Whether he's holding it, he doesn't know. Or they're both holding it, there is no testimony at all because he doesn't know. What do we do? We've learned and we will learn. In the case of doubt in business, there is an oath that our sages instituted. It's a rabbinic oath called Shvuas Hesus. Shvuas Hesus. A rabbinic oath, they both swear, because there came a time when people became more and more dishonest, and people were not afraid to lie. What else is known? But when it came to an oath, <coughs> people were still afraid to take a false oath in God's name. So therefore, our rabbis instituted to take an oath, and they're both insisting that they are the buyer, they both get half the money and half the object. That's the best way to resolve this. Just to give you a little background in oaths, 
According to Torah law, from a note, a person who denies a claim lodged against him is not ob obliged to take an oath at all. By Torah law, there are certain things that do oblige you to take an oath. But denying a claim is not one of them. Nevertheless, the moral character of the Jewish people declined in the era of the Talmud, and there were people who would deny claims even though they were liable. Breaking an oath is a very severe sin, and very few people would dare do that, so therefore the rabbis instituted a special oath called a shuat heset or shuas heses to require a defendant to acknowledge the claim against him. Nevertheless, a shuas heses is more lenient than other oaths because the person making it is not required to hold a sacred object like a Torah or whatever. It's a rabbinic oath, less strict. Several meanings are offered for the term heses. Rashi interprets it as meaning placed, a note that has been placed upon a person by the sages, as opposed to one required by Torah law. Others note the relation to the term mesit, meaning entice or encourage, and interpret it that the oath encourages the defendant to admit his responsibility. Okay, hey, bye. What if somebody says to the seller, you sold me this object? Is there a man in the guy? The other guy says, well, I did not. Or, or he could say another statement. He says, I did sell it to you, but you never paid me. Or, next scenario, the buyer argues and says, the buyer says, I paid the money, but I did not get acquire, but the money's paid. You're going to invalidate the sale, I want my money back. Or I did an act of acquisition. So it's now mine, but I didn't notice this blemish. We learned earlier that a blemish is sufficient cause to nullify the deal. And the seller says, as he used to say when I was a kid, liar, liar, your pants are on fire. Hey, God, I let you know I showed you the blemish. What you talking about? Hey, next scenario, one of them said, we came to the following agreement. Remember we said earlier, any agreement, mutual agreement in business is valid, as long as it's clear and everybody agrees. So there was this consensual agreement between us. The other guy says, never happened. There was no such condition. There's an expression in Jewish learning. It's an acrostic. The expression is, means it never happened. It's, it never happened. You dreamed it. In all of the above scenarios, anything similar, we invoke that famous rule in Torah. What's that famous rule in Torah? When you want to take something out of somebody else's domain, the burden of proof is upon you. Because possession is nine-tenths of the law. Whoever wants to remove it from the other guy's domain, he has the burden of proof. The guy who's in whose domain it is, he has the assumption of ownership. What if there was no proof whatsoever? Nobody could prove anything. The one who denies takes an oath. The one from whose hand something is being slept here. He takes a rabbinic oath. Now comes a situation which is a Torah oath, famous teaching. The Torah says, if somebody comes, if, if one person comes to the other and says, you owe me a hundred dollars. And the person from whom the hundred dollars is being demanded says, I owe you, but not a hundred, I owe you fifty. This is called moda bemixas. The guy admits to the obligation to the debt, but only partially. By Torah law, moda bemixas, chayu bishua. If somebody makes a partial admission, he's obligated by Torah law to swear. It's not a rabbinic oath, it's a Torah oath. Or another form of Torah oath, which we alluded to just earlier. There's one witness. By Torah law, there's nothing greater than the testimony of two kosher witnesses. Good testimony. But if there's one witness, the most one witness can accomplish is to make the guy take an oath. This is also a biblical oath. As is with regard to other claims. And the Rambam says, look at the laws of Toe and Venitan upcoming. Next scenario. What if the buyer says to the storekeeper, here's my dinar, a valuable coin. I'd like to buy produce. You're selling gorgeous pears. Asian pears, I'd like some. Here's a dinar. And he gave it to him. And the produce is placed out there in the public domain. Now the storekeeper says, okay, there's my produce, give me the dinner. And the buyer says, say what? And the buyer says, no, sorry, I gave you the dinner. Check your pocket, I'm sure you got a dinner. The guy has a lot of dinners. I saw you cast it into your pocket. So the question is, did the guy pay or did he not pay? Where is the produce? In the public domain, where was it? The buyer can, as is this rabbinic ordinance of Hesus, in this case we want to hold the holy object, and he can take the produce. Why? Because in this case, they're not in the possession of the seller anymore. So we don't have you, whoever wants to take something out of somebody's possession has to have the burden of proof. It's in a public domain. The produce is in public domain. However, if it was already in the buyer's domain, he can just take an oath of Hesus and done. The storekeeper would swear a Hesus, a rabbinic oath. The issue of Pedesa, that's why the produce would remain with him, with the storekeeper, because possession plays a very important part. The plot thickens. The buyer gives a dinar to the storekeeper. And he says, okay, give me the fruit in the public domain where it was put down. And the storekeeper says, huh? Are you kidding? This dinar that you just gave me, who to make payments? That's the money. The purchase money for the produce. That I gave you earlier. The guy says, hey, you gave me it? Where is it? 
So I delivered it. I have my delivery guy take it. Or I delivered it. What are you talking about? This is a new deal. You paid me for an old deal and you want new produce? Come on. In this case, the storekeeper, Nishbash, the swear, Mirikita's is holding a holy object. That's exactly what happened. It was an old purchase. It was delivered. This is a new purchase. And the produce in the public domain goes to the storekeeper. Because he never admitted that he sold this produce. However, had he been in his store, he would have to swear to as we already explained. So it has to do with domain. The same law applies. When somebody comes to a banker, a money changer, they used to have money changers, used to sit in the marketplace, and people needed to have exchange of coins or what have you, currencies, like a bank, currency exchange. He gave a dinar to the currency exchanger, to the money changer. Lived on boys to take money. Where is the money? The money is set, sitting there in the public domain. That's where he's sitting, in the public domain. So it's not that the coins are in the banker's domain. It's in the public domain. If the money changer admits, yes, I sold him these coins, but I never took the dinner. The buyer then swears, holding a holy object, that he did give him the dinner. And he takes the coins. You know what? Maybe he did. The money changer gets a lot of dinners from a lot of people. That's why you'll see in many situations, the storekeeper, when you pay the storekeeper, he'll leave it right there until the deal is done. He doesn't stick it into the drawer and then give you change. He puts it there until the deal is done. If he doesn't admit it all, then he sold it. Even though he admits he took a dinner, but he says, you know why he paid me a dinner? Because early in the morning, I brought him certain currencies he ordered. He ordered through the internet. In this case, the currency changer, the money changer, swears, holding a holy object, and he can put his money back into his store. Now comes some new scenarios. If somebody doesn't exchange, I'll give you a cow, you give me a donkey. The yolda. And the cow bears a calf. The question is, was the calf born before the moment of exchange or after the moment of exchange? That will determine whose calf it is. Somebody sells a maid servant and she gives birth. Obviously, one says that the birth happened before the sale. The other one says, it's after the sale. I feel like truth be told, even if the seller says, I'll tell you the truth. I don't know. The buyer has to bring proof that it happened after the buy. Even though in this case, the cow might be out in the fields, in the swamp. The maid servant could be somewhere off the side of the public domain. The fact is that something remains in the domain of the seller until the buyer brings proof. And this has to do with another principle that says that something is always in the domain of the original owner until you can show that it left. Everyone is clear that the seller was the original owner. What if he couldn't bring sufficient proof? The seller has to hold an holy object and take an oath. For the calf. He says, I'm sure that the calf was born before the deal closed. But with regard to the offspring of the maidservant, there can never be a Torah oath, only a rabbinic. Because you never hold something holy and take an oath when it comes to servants or real estate. As we will get explained in the upcoming laws of Kohen Benitan. Kohen Benitan means one person argues this and the other defends himself with this. Various business disputes. You know, the eleven one says, any day, I have no idea at what point this calf was born. The any day, the other one says, I also have no idea. They are in neither's domain, not like they should divide it. one says, this was born in my domain. The other guy says, nothing. The guy who says, acquires, because saying nothing is a principle that says, silence is like admission. You got to be very careful when you're silent. You base. Now comes such a common situation. Somebody had two servants. One was little, and the other was big. They saw this area, two fields. One large and one small. Naturally, the buyer says, When I did this deal, I meant the big one. I'm buying the big field. And the seller says, Are you kidding? You bought the small one. How do you know? What do you do? The buyer has the burden of proof. Or there's another option. The seller can take a rabbinic oath that he sold a, the smaller one. If the buyer said, I purchased the larger one. And the seller is silent. And the buyer acquires the larger one. What if the seller says, I'll tell you the honest truth. As they say in French. I have no idea. The buyer now has to bring proof. So the seller can take a rabbinic oath. Shane day that he doesn't know. The angel's helicopter and he only gets a small one. You doubt it. <coughs> the rule is, whenever the doubt over the responsibility for an article arises in the domain of the particular person, then 
That's his burden of proof. Take such for example. I'm not part of Bachamir in the scenario of an exchange of a cow for a donkey. The owner of the donkey drew the cow close to him. That's called Mashiach. It's a form of acquisition. And the owner of the cow did not draw the donkey close to him. Before the donkey died. Now the question is, whose is the dead donkey? Is it the buyer's or is it the seller's? A dead donkey is a dead donkey. The owner of the donkey has to bring proof that his donkey, which could be anywhere, was alive at the moment that the cow was drawn close. Because we learned earlier that you don't need the second object to be there on location. Anything similar. Closing paragraph of chapter 20, a little complex. We learned together a while back the laws of shita, ritual slaughter, and all of the events which could occur to an animal to make it unkosher. One of those events is when you have a sharp object like a needle that is found in the base hakosos in the stomach, or the base hakosos is actually in the second stomach of a cow, of an animal, and the needle pierced through the stomach and made a hole. That is something that causes the animal to be unkosher because it's, it's, it's something that is fatal. Now the question is, did that event happen before the ritual slaughter, before the shokhat slaughtered the animal? In that case, the animal is not kosher because there was an event that occurred prior to it. Or did it happen after the ritual slaughter? In that case, the animal was slaughtered kosher. And if it happened before the ritual slaughter, then the seller is responsible because the butcher bought an unkosher animal. So this is the debate here. A needle was discovered in the animal's second stomach, which we learned earlier is called and it pierced it from side to side. And I'll just share a note here. Note 51 in the Mosnayim Rambam. I stated in Hilchashita, if such a preparation occurred before slaughter, the animal would be rendered trafe, unfit to be eaten. Now the question the halacha revolves around is whether it can be proven that the perforation took place while the cow was in the possession of the seller, not the butcher. If that fact can be established, the sale is nullified. Because you don't have to pay for an animal that you bought as kosher if it was trafe. We learned that earlier. If not, the burden of proof shifts to the butcher because the cow was in his possession when the doubt arose. First thing we knew about a needle was when it was in the position of the butcher. In the possession of the butcher. So, <coughs> says this halacha, if a drop of blood is found upon it, blood means it's a fresh wound. Then we know that it became impure before the slaughter. Because before the slaughter, the animal would bleed. The fecal, therefore, what if it developed a scab? Meaning, time went by. Then it takes three days for a scab to develop. Then this wound occurred three days before the slaughter. So it's clearly in the domain of the seller. But if it didn't develop a scab, we're really not sure when it took place. If the butcher wants to blame it on the seller, he has to prove that it happened before the buy. Because the doubt arose in his domain. If he couldn't, so the animal is in his domain. It's his. He should pay the money to the seller. As we already explained, end of chapter 20. Rambam Mishnah the laws of Mechira, selling. Pedic chapter, Echad V'Esim 21, defining legal parameters in sales. Now here, in chapter 21, he goes into an interesting subject matter. What if the seller declares to the buyer, I'm selling you so-and-so, but so-and-so is not really clear, and we're talking about lack of clarity here, vagueness, and so on and so forth. What if somebody transfers by sale or gift an object to another person, but it's not specific? So he says, as long as the species of the object being transferred is known, even though the measure or the weight or the number of the object transferred is unknown, but the species is known, then the transaction is a good transaction, a binding transaction. But if he has no idea of the species, then there's no acquisition whatsoever, and he defines it in two. For example, what if the seller says to the buyer, I'll sell you this heap of wheat for so much and so much money. How much wheat is in that heap? You don't know, I don't know, we both don't know, but it's a heap. You buy it by what it looks like. A seller filled with wine. I will sell you the kach bekach, so much and so much. But we don't know what filled with wine means. Maybe it has a little wine, maybe it has a lot of wine, maybe it has expensive wine, maybe it has inexpensive wine. Or, sak shaltein in this bag of figs. I'm selling you the kach bekach, so much and so much money. How many figs are in the bag? I don't know. It's like trading for what's behind door number three. Not exactly, but we know the species here. We're looking at it. Even though we don't know exactly how big the heap is, we don't know how much the figs weigh, we don't know how many jugs. None of that is known. I am still the sale is a sale. Even though, 
the buyer or the seller later go through shock when they find that the number is totally different than the number they thought it would be, still the sale is a sale because the species was known. Wheat, pigs, wine. However, as we talked earlier, there is a possibility of getting a refund for over or underpaying or sometimes invalidating the wholesale if it is more than one-sixth of a difference. We learned earlier exactly a sixth requires refund. More than a sixth invalidates the sale if one of them wants to do that. Commissioner Biano, as we explained, the sale is clearly a sale. However, money has to be worked out if it's way off base. Okay. Gimel 3. Give me a second. There's something on my glasses, I think. Abobot. If somebody says to another, now we get more vague, everything in this house, I'm selling you for so much and so much. It's like what we would call today an estate sale. I'll sell you the whole estate. Whatever is in this chest. I don't know what it is, you don't know what it is, but I'll sell you the chest. Whatever is in this bag, whatever is in this sack, I'll sell you for so much and so much. The buyer says, huh, this looks good. And the price sounds right. And he pulled the item towards him. There was no acquisition. Because what do you mean you're buying everything in the house for $10,000? What if there's nothing in the house? Well, it's, it's crazy, it's too vague. Because the mind of the buyer did not really rely upon the reality. He has no idea what's in the house. He has no idea what is in the chest. He has no idea what's in the sack. In Kevin, maybe it's filled with straw. In that case, he overpaid. It's filled with gold. In that case, he underpaid. So what are we looking at? We're looking at gambling. This is like throwing dice. Anything similar? What's the problem with gambling we learned earlier? The problem is there's no real reliance. The seller doesn't intend to convey and acquire. The, the buyer doesn't intend to acquire if it doesn't meet their expectation. So therefore, it's not a real deal. It's called asmachta. It's an assumption. I'm going to take it because it's probably filled with gold. And when it's filled with straw, there's disappointment. So there was never any sincerity here. If somebody sells to another basaradinim, he pays 10 dinars, he buys wheat. He says, give me 10 dinars of wheat. Okay, that's fine. The problem is, how much are you paying for measure? You know, somebody comes and says, I'll buy gasoline for my car. I'll buy gas. I'll buy $50 worth. But nobody decided how much per gallon. That's the deal here. That's, that's foolish. What could be done? You pay the market price. An item like gasoline, an item like wheat has a market price. And anybody that retracts after the money was paid, it is not agreeable to market price. I mean, you go on a computer and you see what is the price at this moment for wheat. The deal should have been a deal. There was money, there was species, and the assumption is market price. Should receive, we talked about this earlier, the opposite of a Mishabera. In chapter 7, Halacha 1, we said that the court says he who punished all the bad guys in history should punish someone who doesn't keep his word. And that's something that people did not want to experience. I mean, Shapara was not a good thing. Now we get complicated. And these laws are based in the Talmud. If somebody, I mean, all these laws are based in the Talmud. But specifically here, we're talking about real estate and how much. If somebody sells a space to another, what is the purpose of the space? Law says buy is to build a house. I want to buy land from you, I'm going to build a house. Now remember, back then their houses were tiny compared to our houses today. You know, today we have what they call McMansions. Or somebody wants to build a barn for his animals. So also somebody accepts. From his friend, his friend says to him, listen, my son is getting married. I need a little starter's apartment for him to live in. Can we do this in your land? A base ominous will be there. God forbid the guy's daughter became a widow. And he needs a small place for her to live until she gets her life together. Now again, where did young newlyweds live back then? In little tiny room additions. In a tiny apartment. And we're still going to be shocked with the definition of tiny. Real tiny. He says, When somebody says, I want to buy land from you to build a dwelling for my newlywed son, to build a dwelling for, God forbid, my widowed daughter. How much space does he need? Large enough to build a house, which is four cubits by six cubits. Okay, a cubit is about a foot and a half. So that would be six by nine, six feet by nine feet. That's like a tiny bedroom. That's how big the land has to be. Again, what's the issue here? The issue is all he told him is, I want to build a room for my newlywed son, for my widowed daughter. He didn't define how big the room is. The, the halacha defines, if it's undefined, this is how big it is. He said, I want to buy land from you to build a bigger house. What's a bigger house? Eight by ten cubits. Again, a cubit is a foot in the hand. If he said, I want a place for a palace, and that's just an expression, a more spacious place, 
Or others say that a trackland was like a place where the king would come, there would be a room surrounded by flowers and beauty, and that's where he would meditate. Asa Eser al Eser, he does it 10 cubits by 10 cubits, 15 feet by 15 feet. That's how big the room has to be, the house has to be, and you need land for that. Tardate Shochot, a place for a garden of a courtyard, Shtein Eser, Shtein Eser, 12 cubits by 12 cubits. Now, the room called Bayez or Bayez, how high? What is the height of every house? Kachatsi Orke, Kachatsi Rochba, you combine the length and the width. So, let's say you have uh, 8 Amos by 10 Amos, that's 18 Amos, you take 8 plus 10, divided by 2 is 9, so it's 9 Amos height. And we learned that from the Beis Hamigdash. And the Beis Hamigdash, its height was half the combined length and width. If somebody sells a person a property for a burial plot, for a family burial plot, how big is that? Or if somebody takes on to build this family plot, the way it worked back then is they used to create a cave. And in the cave, they would create eight graves. Three on the right, and three graves on the left, and two straight ahead, opposite the entryway. How big should the cave be? Four cubits by six cubits. Every grave should be the length of four, the entire length. Six hand breaths wide. So the space between every grave on the side, one grave and another on the side is one and a half cubits. The space between the middle ones a little more. are two cubits. Again, this is all if somebody accepts to do something vague, the halacha gives definition here. And these are all based on conversations and debates in the Talmud between two different Talmudists, and the Rambam gives his decision. What if somebody sells to another? Within his field, became a place for Amas Mayim to make an irrigation ditch. What good is a field if it has no water? So I need to bring the water through your field. What do I need from you right away for an irrigation ditch? Because I need to water a field that has no rain. How does a field that, have no, that has no rain acquire water? Through irrigation ditches. But the irrigation ditch has to have a right of way. That's what we're talking about. Give me a right of way in your field for an irrigation ditch. But what is the meaning of a right of way? How big is it? Nason, like a sixth day, we gives him in his field, Amma, a ditch, an irrigation ditch, Sherochba, which is wide, Shtei Amma is two cubits, two cubits wide. A cubit is about a foot and a half, three feet wide. The Amma Bikan, the Amma Bikan, the Agapel, and another Amma on each side for the bank. But what if he sold him an irrigation ditch that will use a pipe? A pipe is more contained. He should sell him a ditch that is one amma wide, and only a half amma on each side for the sides because the water is more confined in a pipe. What happens at the banks of this ditch? The one who owns the field could plant them. And what could he plant? Trees, but not vegetation. Because vegetation, because grain weakens the land and damages the ditch, whereas trees, the roots dig deep and it doesn't affect the surface. Should the land at the banks of this ditch disappear, be washed away, then the owner of the irrigation ditch could correct it by using dirt in this greater field. He doesn't have to go import dirt. He can get dirt anywhere in the field. Because this is the definition of the deal. I'm building an irrigation ditch in your field. Obviously, if the sides get washed away, then I need more dirt. If somebody sells another, a path, a right-of-way path through his field, if he sells him a path for one person, just the owner could take a shortcut there. He gives him two and a half cubits wide. What's the purpose of that? It has to be wide enough for a donkey and his burden to pass in this path, and the burden could fall outside the path area because there's room to the sides. So the path could be narrower. But if he sold him a path, a road between one city and the other, and it goes through his field, that already needs a wider path. A city road, a road from one city to the other, needs eight amos, 12 feet wide. But it was a public road, not a private access. But public, he has to give him 16 cubits wide, which is what the Torah considers a public thoroughfare as discussed in Halacha, having to do with the road leading to the city of refuge, what they had in the desert, and so on and so forth. Now, earlier, when we talked about this small path, the Rimigash, who's Rambam's teacher, explains that the above applies, as I pointed out when we said it, when there are no walls on the path, and so whatever burden is being carried by this donkey can project outside the walls, but if there are walls, then you need a larger area. And this will resolve a seeming conflict between here and the laws we learned earlier in the laws of gifts to the poor, that a path for a single person is four cubits wide, that's because there must have been walls there, so you need a wider path. What if somebody sells somebody a king's path? Like in Brooklyn, they have King's Highway. That's where they get it from. Or a path to a grave, there are no necessary defined limits. What is a king's path? A king's path is whatever the king wants. Because the king has a right to tear down any structure that stands in the way of the passage of his troops. I guess even in today's governmental world, there's a word for it. It's called eminent domain. 
Also, a funeral procession does not have to be confined to a particular path, but can spread out beyond the confines of the path, even though the people will damage produce. And this is forbidden, he says, based upon the Rajbam and Baba as a sign of respect for the person who passed away, so they'll trample the field a little bit. But hey, this is a funeral. Funerals don't happen every day. Says the Rambam, and somebody says, I'm selling you a king's path. I'm selling you a funeral path. It's undefined. It's too big. And therefore, it's too big of a sale for the sale to take effect. What if he sold him a place for a friend or relative to stand and eulogize? He says, listen, you know, the, the, the burial plot is here and here. I need a place in your field for the guy to deliver his eulogy. So what's the definition? He gives him a place large enough to sow for kabim of grain. He says here that the Rajbam in Baba Basra, page 100b, defines this as being about 40 square cubits. That's pretty serious. Okay. If somebody says to his friend, to his fellow, I'm selling you this cistern, this pit, along with its walls, because a good cistern needs to have solid walls. What's the definition of that? He gives him the width of the walls, which are three handbreadths. You need a solid wall for a cistern to hold. Okay, now again, we're all talking, we're talking here about vagueness. The seller said one thing, the buyer heard another thing. What are we talking about? Definition of vagueness. Now we get a little complex. If somebody sells a field to his fellow, now, understand that now when we sell a field or when we sell real estate, we give exact dimensions. That's why you have all these numbers, this and this page, and this and this map, from number 44 to number... There's such exactitude in our deeds of trust or in our property deeds. But back then, it didn't work that way. That's why we have these laws, because it creates a lot of questions. This scenario is somebody sells a field to another. And he measured for him. One side of the dimension he lays out was longer, and the other side was shorter. And here, there is a diagram. We see here that the seller drew lines on all four sides of the field, but drew one of the horizontal lines shorter than the other. Now the question is why he did that. One of the horizontal lines delineating the field's boundaries was drawn to its full length, and one was drawn only partially. And if we can get our producer to zoom in on the top one. Good. So here you see that there is a square here, but the very top of the square has a shorter line than the bottom of the square. Now the question is why. That's a fact. When he set out the boundaries, this is what happened. Now the question is why. So, if the full length of the line, the full length line, was bordering the property of one person, then that's what the seller wanted to point out. Then what he really sells him is the line up to the shorter line. Why did he make the longer line? Just to point out that that is a boundary belonging to one person. So the sale is only the shorter line sale. But if the property belonged to both, to two people, again, the boundary property of the full line, then he gets to buy the field with a diagonal line. Now let me ask again, Daniel, who's here with us today, to zoom in. I want you to get diagram two. So this is if the adjoining field belonged to one person. He's only showing him the line of the field, but really he's only selling him to the shorter line. So let's just turn this this way, or actually this way. No, I did that wrong. We have to turn it. Uh, you know what? We don't have to turn it at all. The bottom line is, is that we see here that half the field was sold, and the other half he's keeping for himself. Why? Because the shorter line is where he's selling it to him, and the longer line is what he's keeping for himself. See, I tried to do it in the same direction. But imagine that you had a line coming straight down here. That's what this is. On the other hand, if it belonged to several people, then you go from the shorter line, and you go to the corner, and that's the division. It's a diagonal division. Again, we're trying to speculate what the man meant when he says, I'm selling you, and he gives him this strange definition. So that's paragraph 13. Paragraph 14. Next scenario, if Reuben has a field to the east and to the west of the field that's being sold, and a fellow named Shimon has a field to the north and the south of the field, he has to write clearly, Reuben's boundary is from two sides, east and west, Shimon's boundary is from two sides, north and south, meaning that that would give clarity to what he's selling him. But, if he doesn't tell him that, then maybe he's not selling him the whole field. If the seller drew three boundary lines, First, the second, and the third. Not the fourth. The purchaser acquires the whole field, except for the fourth boundary. Because the guy did not draw the fourth. 
Now, what are we talking about? I'll ask Daniel to zoom in. This is the diagram where he did not draw the fourth boundary. So you see that we divide the field into four triangles meeting at the center. And the dark boundary, the dark fourth, is what he keeps for himself. That's why he did not draw the fourth line. This is according to the interpretation of the Rashbam in the Gemara. What if the fourth boundary is included within the other boundaries? What does it mean to be included within the other boundaries? Here we have another diagram. We can zoom in, please. The, the bottom diagram. So we see here that the fourth boundary is moved in. It's not at the end of the other two boundaries. It's somewhat within it, which means it's swallowed up within the area that we assumed he would mine. So it's a shorter boundary. And it does not have a roll of palm trees, which can clearly delineate the boundary. And it also does not have enough space to plant nine kabim of grain, because that is an independent entity. And in that case, he also acquires the fourth. But if it was not pushed in, it has a roll of palm trees. Or it has enough area to plant this amount of plantings, then he doesn't acquire. So there are certain conditions which will determine what this deal means. If it was incorporated, it has a row of palms, or it's big enough to plant uh, nine or it was not moved in, does not have palm trees, does not have that space. And here comes a unique law in the Gemara, which the Rambam explains that this is handed over to the court. The court gets to make the decision as to what they think the deal consists of. The court will examine the situation, whatever the court decides should be done. What if the seller only designates the corners? The seller shows corners. But he doesn't show the boundary on every side. Or he showed him two opposite corners, two catty corners, like an L-shape. We showed him a part on each side. He does not acquire the whole thing. He should acquire from it. According to what it seems he transferred. As the judges will see. So we have three scenarios here. One scenario is that if he only showed him corners, so we'll ask our producer here to zero in on the top one. This is where he shows him corners. All he did was he showed him the corners. This is what I'm selling you. One corner line, two corner lines, three corner lines, four corner lines. Now the question is, what does it mean? We're assuming you make a box in the corners. The second scenario is where he just showed him two caddy corner L-shaped, and that's what he's selling him. We assume that the fill-in is what he's selling him, the, the space between. And finally, the third is where he says he only showed him a portion of each side. So we have the third diagram, which shows that he only gets a portion of each side. All of this is based on debates in the Gemara, and the Rambam gives his decision according to one of the opinions there. So this is the end of the complicated part. We now go back to the regular stuff. Very interesting question in today's world. Today's world, we have what's called a condominium. What if there's a condominium that's in a building that has three other condominiums? Am I selling you, when I say I'm going to sell you this house, did I mean the condominium or did I mean the building? If somebody sells an apartment, a house, to someone in a larger house, a condominium in a complex, even though he drew for him the greater complex, maybe he wanted to show him where the condominium is set. In a situation where the guy owns both, the question is, what did he sell him? Even though there are people who refer to an apartment as a house, like in today's world, a condo could be a house. This is where I live. But Kone Alabai only purchases that apartment. He doesn't purchase the whole building. Because all he's showing him is the greater boundaries. Had he, sold him, had he sold him the whole building, he would have written that which is traditional in Aloha. He would have written, I left nothing in this sale for myself. I sold it all to you. But in this case, he leaves all the other apartments. Somebody sells a field. In a large valley, there's a large valley, and the valley contains many fields, and he sold them one field. And then he gives a design of the valley. Does it mean he sold him the whole valley for that price? No. He's just showing him the greater boundaries. What if he says to another, I'm selling you fields. Now the question is, how many fields? The answer is, minimum plural two. Mi'ut, sadeh, shnayim. The minimum of plural is two. Amalei, told him, kol, sadeh, all my fields. Afil, shalosh, ma'arba, even three or four. Chutz, miganis, sopardesim. It does not include gardens and orchards. Amalei, said, nechosim, all my possessions. Afil, miganis, sopardesim. Even his gardens and orchards. Chutz, mi'bat, mi'bat, It does not include his houses or his servants. Amalei, called nechosim. If he tells him everything I own, all my property. Afil, ha'avodim, mubotim, ha'amatalpam, ha'idun, this includes servants, houses, and immovable objects. If he said, I'm selling you everything I own, everything I own means everything I own. Again, the issue here is what did he mean when he said an obscure statement? Somebody says to the other, I'm selling you a house, one of my houses. I'm selling you an ox of my oxen. He said, one house of all my houses. One ox of all my oxen. The guy had 20 houses. The guy had 20 oxen. What does he have to deliver him? 
Which house? A big, bigger house, smaller house. If he said one, he can give him the smallest one. He said, I'm selling you one ox. If one ox died, he can say, that's your ox. Sorry, your ox died. One of the houses fell. He said, that's your house. Sorry, it fell. Because the buyer always has the worst position because of the obscurity. I'm selling you a field from the house of Chia. That's an expression. Why is he calling it the house of Chia? Because that's what the field was called. Well, they saw this. They have two fields that have that name. He only buys, he only acquires the lesser one. That the same applies to other similar situations. I'm selling you Reuben's field. What's Reuben's field? When the buyer comes to the field, he thought it was Reuben's field. The seller says, This is not the field that belongs to Reuben. The field that belonged to Reuben. No. This field is called Reuben's field. Why? Because that's what Columbus called it when he discovered America. It's never belonged to Reuben. You know what I meant? I meant this little tiny field that I once bought from Reuben. That's what I sold you. So this is a big misunderstanding. The seller must bring proof that there is a field that's called Reuben's field and that he bought the field. He can't just make these things up. If he didn't bring proof, the buyer acquires the field that everybody calls Reuben's field or anything similar because it seems that the seller is duping him. We follow the name that is accepted to the majority of people. If somebody says to his fellow, I'm selling you half my field. What is the meaning of half my field? And again, the big question is going to be, is it half quantitatively? If the field is 50 by 100, does he sell him 50 by 50, that's half? Or is it qualitatively? Some of the field produces more, some of the field produces less. In fact, one side of the field has rocks and stones and produces nothing. What's half my field? He says, show me, we estimate, we evaluate, we appraise, how much the whole field is worth. Then, once we find out, he has to give him half the financial amount, but of the two halves, he can give him the weaker half. But it has to meet the dollar value. I'm selling you the half in the south. You evaluate and appraise the whole field. And on the south side, you give him half the money worth of land. And the buyer accepts. The buyer has to put in his part, the separating fence, Behind the fence, next to the fence, there has to always be a small ditch. Three handbreadths wide. Then there has to be a greater ditch. Nine because there has to be clear separation between the two properties, and this will be in the buyer's half. And between the two, there has to be a handbreadth. What is the purpose of all of this space? All of this is necessary to prevent animals that destroy fields, like an emia, which he translates here as a marten, uh, a small but deaf carnivorous animal. Others mean it's an animal that destroys crops. This gap will stop this animal from crossing over. The closing. Paragraph of chapter 21. What if he only had half the field? I'm selling you half of what I have in the field. The question is, is he buying half or is he buying half of half? He bought the whole half. He actually half of what I have. Like Cornell he only buys a quarter. The boundaries of this field from which a portion is divided. Various other expressions. Divided, separated, apportioned. He said, and these are the boundaries. He acquires half. He didn't designate its boundaries. Like Cornell he only gets that size that can be planted with nine carbon, as we said. That's a respectable size. End of chapter 21.